Thank you for listening to this podcast from Renew San Diego, a church for the good of all our neighbors in North Park, San Diego. If you're ever in the area on Sunday mornings, we'd love to welcome you. More information at renewsandiego.org. Share with a friend. See you soon. Friends, the scripture reading today is John chapter 20, verses 19 through 31. When it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. But Thomas, who was called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands, and put my finger in the mark of the nails, and my hand in his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were again in the house, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were shut, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing you may have life in his name. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's take a moment and pray together. Gracious God, as we open these scriptures now, as we come to these ancient stories, help us to see Not only that they're real and true and accessible, but actually this is what we're looking for in all of our wandering. We come to this very moment from a variety of places, different ethnicities and cultures, different places in our spiritual journey, some of us believing, others of us unbelieving, most of us somewhere in between. We come here confident and hopeful and energetic and excited. We come here exhausted and depressed and afraid and angry. Most of us, a mixture of all of these different emotions and experiences. Help us to see, however we come to this very moment, that you see us in all our complexity and contradictions, the ways we get it and the ways we don't get it, and you know us to our deepest depths, and you love us. When you look at us, you say, you are my beloved child in whom I'm well pleased. Help us to see that your response to the brokenness of this world and the confusion of our lives is not to stand far off and just watch, but rather to enter in, in the person and work of your Son, Jesus Christ, who makes all things new. And so open our eyes now to that true story, to your grace, to the power of your resurrection, 
to the mission of your renewing love. Help us to receive that, enter into it, and then walk as agents of your resurrection power and presence wherever we go. We pray all these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. You know, every time I come to this passage, I think about the phenomenon of um, nicknames. And nicknames are a funny thing. If, if you're lucky, you can choose your own nickname, but no one ever gets to choose your own nickname. It's always bestowed on you. And sometimes there's reason to rejoice. Okay? I'll tell you the story of one of my favorite nicknames that's been given to me by my dear friend. We were at a conference in Miami years and years ago, and my friend who I think is watching. I'm going to leave his name out of it. I don't think he'd mind, but just, just to protect the innocent here. We were in Miami, and he was speaking at this conference. And so, like a responsible person, he was like going to get some sleep and get to bed early. And I said, let's go and check out South Beach, Miami. And he said, I have you know, this commitment tomorrow. I said, we'll be back by then. So we, w- we went down to South Beach, and I just remember my dear friend playing the bongos on stage with the band at a very early hour in the morning, and as I'm dancing there and encouraging him, and we are having a blast together, he bestowed on me the nickname Juggernaut. (laughs) Juggernaut, like a juggernaut. Once I get started, nothing's going to stop me. I have worn that as a badge of courage ever since that day. One of our neighbors just received a nickname a few weeks ago given by his children, Old Hollywood. So Old Hollywood, if you're uh, participating today, shout out to you. That's a great name. To this day, when I drive by his house, I shout out for Old Hollywood. Sometimes nicknames aren't so good, though. There was a guy at my university who, because of some really poor choices he made on a particular night of weakness, uh, just got a nickname that to this day, 20 years later, still is the first word that comes to mind when I think of this person. Nicknames, nicknames are interesting. And whether or not you're really deeply familiar with scripture and the stories in it, you're probably familiar with the nickname Doubting Thomas. Don't be a Doubting Thomas. This passage is where that nickname comes from. And it's an unfortunate one for Thomas because throughout his life, he had many moments of strength and courage and trust and confidence. But in this very moment, we see him zoomed all the way in on his doubts And then that's bestowed upon him the name Doubting Thomas. See, here's the problem. Thomas missed a critical meeting that we read about earlier in verses 19 through 22. On the first day of the week, on the night of that first Easter, where just imagine here for a moment, you are one of Jesus' friends and followers, and three days earlier on Good Friday, you've seen him brutally crucified on a Roman cross. And three days later, on that first Easter, you have heard, begun to hear these reports of eyewitnesses saying, the tomb is empty. We've seen him risen from the dead. And you're hoping, but you're also credulous, not sure if you can believe or trust these things. And you're having a closed meeting. And the doors are locked because you're afraid of the authorities of that time. And Jesus shows up in the room. And the first thing he says He stands among them in the midst of their fears and their doubts, in the midst of their sadness and their confusion. He moves toward their pain and he says, peace be with you. Does that surprise you? Where is it right now in your life that you feel like you're maybe trapped in that room? with your fears, with your doubts, 
with your concerns? Does it surprise you that God would go right into that very part of your life and his first words to you would be, peace be with you. Peace be with you. Elsewhere, he says, I give you peace, not as the world gives, which makes you and me ask, well, how does the world give peace? You know, there are billions of dollars spent every year on marketing and market research and ad campaigns designed to promise you and me peace. That if you just buy a certain car or live in a certain zip code or take the right kind of vacation or drink the right kind of beverage, then you can have peace. Um, we do this in ways uh, just naturally throughout our lives. If you have the right sort of relationship with those closest to you or a different uh, set of people that are around you, if you have the right spouse or the right kids or different kids or if the kids could behave differently, if you had more money in the bank account. We even do this in good and healthy ways. If you have more health, if you look better, if you're more in shape, we take good things and we make them ultimate things. And they're not ultimately strong enough or noble enough to give you the kind of peace that God desires for you to have. So maybe you're here today, and right now the reason why you're a part of this moment right here is because you need to hear Jesus get in front of you and say, peace be with you. I am with you in the midst of all your confusion and all your questions, and I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Peace be with you. Now, the story continues because Thomas wasn't there. Thomas had missed this critical moment. And does Jesus write him off for missing that moment? Nope, not at all. He shows him something that will change his life forever. So in the brief time we have together, let's take a look. What does Jesus show Thomas? How does he show Thomas? How does Thomas respond, and how do we respond, okay? What does he show him first? What does Jesus show Thomas? This first moment, this resurrection moment, does he give him a, a greatest hits of his best teachings? I mean, Thomas was there and heard the Sermon on the Mount. He heard all the parables and countless unrecorded conversations. Nope. The first thing Jesus shows Thomas is his resurrected body with the scars. His wounded hands and side are Jesus' first and most basic historical documents and evidence of his resurrection. You see, as a believer, Thomas does not need to see the risen Christ, risen from the dead with his own eyes, but as an apostle he does. Go with me on this. We learn later in Acts chapter 1 that part of the criteria for being an apostle was you had to be an eyewitness of the resurrection. The apostles testify to the historicity of the resurrection, what Jesus actually did. And it's as if John is saying, look at the treatment that we got as apostles. It's as if he anticipates the modern mindset, the inclination of the human heart to make Jesus just another teacher. You know, I understand right now someone saying, look, this death, blood of Jesus, resurrection, worshiping Him as God, that stuff, it makes me a little uncomfortable. It makes me a lot uncomfortable. But I like His teachings. I like His love, justice, 
I like the peace and love your neighbor stuff. And John's answer to that would be, you miss Jesus entirely if you skip his work on your behalf and you treat him as if he's just a wise sage. You don't modernize Christianity. You disembowel it. You don't just take the teachings, you know. Love your neighbor. Forgive your enemies. To try to do that without the power of the resurrected Christ is exhausting. See, his resurrection gives you a whole new reason and a whole new fuel to be able to go and love your enemies and forgive those who wrong you. See, his teaching does matter because he's the resurrected Messiah. If it's just about his teaching or his philosophy, then Christianity boils down to a code of ethics and a way for you to learn how to live. But when you see that it's actually not that, but it's the gospel, it's good news of what God's done on your behalf, then it's all about what he has done for you, not what you do to earn your own salvation and be right with God. You see the difference? If it's merely a code of ethics following the teachings of a wise sage, then it's all about you trying to strive and obey and following the example more and more. It's about you putting together a better moral life. But when you see that it's actually good news about what he's done, that his grace is what's lavished upon you, that he is the savior and the rescuer of the whole world, which means you don't have to be the savior and the rescuer of yourself. It's about how he has invaded this world with his great peace and mission of renewal that God is redeeming this world even now. God is at work in ways that are visible and invisible. See, when you, teach him just, when you treat him just as a teacher, without the resurrection, you miss all the power. You miss all the depth. You know, I've had the privilege as a pastor over the years to visit prisoners in county jail to visit people that are in dire circumstances in hospitals, to visit people escaping civil war in Africa, to visit with our homeless neighbors experiencing poverty and and exposure on the streets right here. And it reminds me, whenever I visit people who are at the end of their resources, that historically the gospel spread the fastest among the poor, among the marginalized, I mean, can you imagine the apostles sitting there and sitting them down and saying, good news, turn the other cheek. Good news, love your neighbor. Get rid of prejudice and pride and the world will be a better place. And the poor say, wow, now we have an antidote to all our despair. See, not at all. We know it doesn't work that way. No, they see that as a band-aid on a hemorrhage. But what turned the world upside down and what transformed individual lives and changed entire societies was when they could go together and say, the brokenness of this world, the brokenness of these lives will be made better because of a God of the resurrection. They would say, now you're talking. Now I have the power to turn the other cheek because I know that God will rescue and redeem. Now I know the power to forgive others when they wrong me because I see how I'm forgiven. See, the thing is, most of us, if you're in the middle class in America, if you have food on the table and a roof over your head, um, what we really want is, from Jesus is just a teaching. 
We want some wise teaching sprinkled on top of an already pretty put-together life. I think that's one of the things this coronavirus pandemic is unveiling and revealing about us. I'm not sure that it's actually making life all that much more uncertain. I think it is breaking through and breaking down all the ways we contrive our lives. We set them up in a way we want to maximize certainty and security, and the reality is life isn't all that certain. And when you start to realize that our lives are far more fragile than we want to admit, as we're realizing right now, when you start to realize society could become more unstable than we would like to think about, then teaching is not merely enough. You actually need power from above. You and I begin to come to the end of our rope, the end of our resources, and say we need for God to break through and do something for us we can never do for ourselves. And it's in that moment that he says, now you're talking, because I'm not merely a teacher. See my wounds. See my resurrected body. I am here and present with you, and I'm doing something about it. See, in the first century, it was these people who got it first. The resurrection changed everything. They had a new past. Jesus' perfect life on their behalf. They have a new present tense moment where it's not just about us striving and contending and pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps, but it's Jesus himself saying, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. They have a new future. They'll live forever in a rehabilitated body and a new creation that what happens right now actually matters because God is renewing all of it. See, there's a new hope altogether. Friends, is your story, is your worldview big enough, noble enough to hold the reality of your life right now? And Jesus says, look at my wounds. Look at my body. Look at the empty tomb. Listen to the eyewitnesses, the apostles themselves, who testify to new creation breaking forth in the midst of the old. So that's what he shows Thomas. And that is everything. <laughs> that's a lot. But let's look at how he shows Thomas. Before we get into that, I want to tell you the story about um, when I was in, in grade school, I had this teacher and I thought I could do this spot-on impression of her, her vocal tone, the way that she, kind of her mannerisms. And one time, for all of my buddies in school, I was doing this impression of my teacher, which wasn't entirely flattering. And I had that moment where everyone's locked on, eye contact with me, and pretty soon, I could tell their eyes started to go upward above where my head was. That kind of feeling where you start to think someone's standing behind me. And as I'm in the middle of this impression, I realize my teacher is behind me right now, hearing everything I'm saying. Uh, that led to some embarrassment and guilt in the short term. It led to some punishment and detention in the longer term because I was caught. And she saw the whole thing. Look at our passage today. In verse 25, Thomas says, Unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands, and put my finger in the mark of the nails and my hand in his side, I will not believe. And then, a week later, Jesus comes and in verse 27 says to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. You know what that means? That means Jesus was there the whole time and heard Thomas's doubt 
heard Thomas saying, I doubt Jesus, who promised he would be risen from the dead, actually did what he said that he would do. I doubt that he is who he said that he was. I won't believe it until I can actually see it myself. And Jesus shows up. And what does he say? Here. See it. Touch it. You can trust me. He doesn't condescend him. He doesn't shame him. He doesn't guilt him. He doesn't say, how dare you not believe after all we've been through? He treats him with patience. I mean, not only now, but with three years of walking with Jesus, of relationships, of evidence, of inquiry, and Thomas still doesn't get it. And in verse 26, Jesus says, peace be with you. He must have known Thomas was quaking inside. Place your finger here. Place your hands here. Jesus knows Thomas's doubts and questions, and he meets him in the midst of them. That's one of the reasons the Renew Church community is a community where your doubts and questions are welcomed, where it actually becomes normalized. To be a Christian, to be a person of faith, to investigate and consider Christianity is not to leave all your doubts at the door and check your brain at the door. Rather, it's to engage with those very questions and doubts and concerns and trust that he will meet you in the midst of them. He treats him with patience. Does that surprise you? That God treats you with patience right now. I think we need patience more than ever right now. Patience with ourselves. Patience with others around us. But first see how he treats you so patiently. But second, he treats him. He shows him with grace. I mean, Thomas has to be thinking, he has seen me at my worst. He has seen me at my most faithless. And he moves toward me and toward my doubts with sympathy, with patience, with grace, but he also shows him with actions. Jesus doesn't simply say, you know, it's just blind faith and you got to close your eyes and just trust these things and just believe these things and don't ask too many questions. No, no, no. It's no power play. He gives him tangible wounds, tangible signs as if he's saying, I've done something about your doubt. You see, the most natural thing in the world, Thomas, is for you to believe me and trust me and have unity with me and relationship with me. And yet that has become the most unnatural thing in the world. But I have done something about it. See my wounds with which I move closer to you. I've come to heal that. Maybe we ought to see Jesus showing Thomas his wounds with tears, not with pride. He shows him with grace, with patience, with actions. And how does Thomas respond? Well, first Thomas responds with a few words here that are one of the purest Christian confessions in all of the scriptures. He responds in verse 28, my Lord and my God. He's articulating what the gospel of John has been trying to get you and me to see all along. In John chapter 6, Jesus says, I am the bread of heaven. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry. In John chapters 4 and 7, he says, I'm living water. Whoever comes to me will never thirst. In John chapter 8, he says, before Moses was, 
I am, using the same words that Yahweh uses to describe Himself. In John chapter 14, Jesus says, when you have seen Me, you see the Father. Don't you know the Father and I are one? And in John chapter 12, He enters into Jerusalem as the coming King, the King of Peace. It's as if all of this is focusing in on this one moment where He's saying, crown Me as King or kill Me as an imposter. I'm either all-powerful or I'm a waste of your time. He targets it on a personal statement of faith as John shows us Thomas exclaiming, My Lord and my God. Think about these words. My Lord and my God. Lord, God. These were titles for God. That He's ultimate He's the God of the universe. He's the God of creation. And He's a God who's intimate. My Lord. My God. A God who is both ultimate and intimate. Transcendent beyond anything we can ask or imagine and intimate as close to us as the air we breathe. My Lord and my God. I will center my life around You. You want to know how else Thomas responds? Do you notice this? He responds without conditions. Most scholars and commentators acknowledge that Thomas didn't end up touching Jesus or putting his hand in his side. See, he came with conditions. He said, I won't believe unless I can touch the nail marks, I can put my hand in his side. I won't believe unless... But when he was actually confronted with the living, resurrected Christ, who was doing nothing but showering him with peace and grace and patience, he ran to him. My Lord and my God. He dropped his conditions altogether. And here's the point. When you and I say, I'll call you my Lord and my God if X fill in the blank. I'll call you my Lord and my God if you fill up my bank account. I'll call you my Lord and my God if you take care of my health in a certain way. I'll call you my Lord and my God if I get this particular career or this particular relationship. I will call you my Lord and my God if blank. In that moment, the blank, however you fill that in, that is your real Lord and your God. Jesus is just a means to an end. Jesus is just the way you get what you actually really want. But when you meet the real Jesus, when you see that He is risen from the dead and He has marks, not only to prove it, but to prove His great love for you, you and I can begin to say, whether or not I get anything else, what I really need is Him my Lord and my God. And Thomas gains an entirely new purpose in life because uh, the tradition goes on that he actually went as far as India to share the good news of Christ's life, death, and resurrection, bravely going uh, wherever God had called him to go. He might have been doubting Thomas for a brief moment, but when he saw the resurrected Christ, he became courageous Thomas, perseverant Thomas. Patient Thomas. 
Thomas who seeks to go out and care for others. It completely redirected his life as it redirects your life and mine. So that brings us to the question, how do we respond like Thomas? First is, as we saw earlier, the apostles got the eyewitness resurrection treatment. And so you know what makes sense? It's for you and me to actually listen to the apostles. Thankfully, they wrote down what they saw. And that's what we have in the New Testament of Scripture. And so it seems basic, but sometimes you have to go back to fundamental basics for health and say, look at the royal treatment they got. Sure, books, articles, podcasts, it's all fine, of course. But number one, is go to the primary sources. If you are seeking to grow in your faith, develop your faith, if you're wondering if you can ever believe these things, start with the actual gospel narratives themselves. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Not just the ABCs of faith, but the A to Z of faith. And now we actually have space and time to be in our home, and we have time to read it. So that's part of the reason we get together in our community group on a Zoom meeting every Wednesday night. The information's at our website, renewsandiego.org. We get together in that community group so we can wrestle through the scriptures together and ask our questions and develop our understanding. But you can develop a daily diet of scripture as well. If you don't know where to start, you can simply Google you know, the Bible, and everyone has it now in their pocket on their phone. But maybe you, maybe you have an old school paper copy of the Bible, and you put a sticky note in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1. And just each day, read one chapter. That's about one page of reading. And you're beginning to give yourself this steady diet of what the apostles have to say about the event that changed the entire world, the resurrected Christ. So first, listen to the apostles. Second, commit to community. I think it's intriguing that Thomas missed that deep, transformative experience because he wasn't with the community. Right? They had a meeting and he wasn't there and Jesus met with them and said, peace be with you. And he missed the whole thing because he wasn't a part of the community. Friends, join together in community. That's where you find yourself. Now, during this season, we have to be savvy about how we do it. So you're always invited on Sunday mornings at 9.30 to our community group on Wednesday nights. But we're always finding other ways to organically connect with one another. Stay in touch with the community. And when we can finally get back together, come and join us in person. Third, see how patient Jesus is with you. As we already talked about, his great patience, seeing Thomas at his worst, seeing him in his doubts, and treating him with patience and grace. Jesus knows all of you through and through. The parts you're very proud of, the parts you're not very proud of at all. And he doesn't say, yuck, or I can't believe you would do that, or think that, or say that. He rather comes to you and says, peace be with you. See how patient he is with you. I have seen, he says, I have seen you at your very worst, and I love you. I'll never leave you. This is what melts Thomas' heart. Next, look at his wounds. See, you will never give your life to Jesus. You will never become a Christ follower until you can see he's more than a teacher and he's more than just powerful that he actually uses his wisdom and his power to serve you, to love you, to give himself on your behalf. See him 
as a God with wounds for you and me, who has actually taken the pain and the weight of this world upon himself, has died an unjust death on a cross, has received beatings as he sacrificially gives of himself, takes the entire weight of pain and brokenness upon himself, and has done something about it once and for all. He's not only powerful, he's beautiful. When you see that, he begins to melt your heart. Receive him now. And next, be sent in mission. He says in verse 21, as the Father sends me, so I send you. The Latin word for sent is missio. It's where we get the word for mission. You have an entirely new mission in your life. He says, as the Father sent me, how I send you? Which makes us ask the question, how did the Father send him? And we learn in John chapter 3, verse 16, the Father so loved the world that he sent his only Son, that whoever would believe in him would never die but have eternal life. That's how the Father sent the Son. That's how he sends you and me. And here's the big idea. If disciples are sent just as Jesus was sent, so we can say, God so loved the world that he sent Christians, <laughs> that he sent Christina and Stephen and Derek and Jeanette and Jonathan into the world so that everyone who trusts the one that they represent will not be empty, but will have deep, lasting, overflowing life. You see, you and I go out in that very pattern and mission. What does it look like for you to be sent this week? Maybe it begins right in your home. Over our dining room table, we have a quote from Mother Teresa that says, if you want to change the world, go home and love your family. Maybe it starts right there. It goes to your neighbors. It goes to your colleagues, to your friends, to your enemies. What does it look like for you to be sent with your particular personality, with your particular skill set, with your position at work, with your relationships, with your finances, with your sphere of influence? What does it look like for you to be sent into the world as good news? And this is why every Sunday we gather together to be reminded of his great love for us, to be refilled up, reignited, reawakened to his grace, and then redirected outward in mission to serve others. We are blessed and sent. This church becomes a resurrection outpost. Your life becomes a resurrection outpost wherever you go. And you actually live into an entirely new nickname. In Acts chapter 16, we learn that this group of Christ followers from every ethnicity and culture, this ragtag group of people that you could not find together anywhere else on earth, the people who were watching had to come up with a new word for these people that were pouring their lives out for others with resurrection, faith, and hope. And you know what that new nickname is? Christian. To become a Christian is to take on the name of Christ. You become a little Christ. Extending his welcome, his grace, his forgiveness, his presence, his power to renew. It goes to you and then it goes through you to others. Friends, this is the invitation for you and me today. Let's pray. Gracious God, we do pray now that you would meet us like you met Thomas in that great surprising moment. That you see us in our weakness and failure and your response is to move into it and say, peace be with you. You see us in our fear and uncertainty, and you move towards us and say, 
Peace be with you. But you come with more than mere words. You come with actions. Actions of a resurrected Christ who takes the pain of the world and crashes right through it. And so now, would you call us as you called Thomas? Would you help us to respond? My Lord and my God, you are both ultimate and intimate with new faith, hope, and love. Only you can break through and convince us of your great love for us. Would you please do that now? And then when you send us out as your agents of renewal, wherever we go, we pray these things for our good and for your glory. Amen. Thank you.